John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It feels like forever since I've been with you guys. John and I have been together, and Todd and John has been together, but it's been a long time since the three of us have been together to talk about an accident. So uh, here we go. Todd, this is going to be one of those accidents where you know, sometimes more money than brains when it comes to uh, to operating a private aircraft with a billionaire owner. And a classic situation where just looking at the numbers and the technology is not enough to get to the bottom of, how do you prevent this from happening to you? But I digress. Let's talk about this accident. This was a July 4th, 2019 event that happened in Big Grand Cay, the Bahamas, where, in essence, there was a helicopter flown in from Fort Lauderdale to pick up two people who had been at a party at this uh, apparently a very nice house in the Bahamas, and they were being shuttled back for medical treatment. And the uh, pilots who did this had flown this route 10 times before, according to the NTSB, but they'd never done it at night. Uh, the pilot who flew this was the chief uh, helicopter pilot for the company that um, managed this helicopter. And by the way, that company was owned by a billionaire who was also, unfortunately, one of the pa passengers who uh, was uh, killed in this accident. And even in the NTSB report, we have a fairly clear picture that this was a long-term relationship between the pilot and the owner. They've been friends for a long time. The uh, person who was uh, owned the, uh, the place out in the Bahamas also owned the aircraft uh, rental company or management company that managed both fixed wing and helicopters. This was the only helicopter. The pilot of this helicopter was the essentially the chief pilot for this. And basically, reading the NTSB report, this had been a personal helicopter. This pilot was on call all the time from the owner to do whatever. In this case, the whatever was at night, after the pilot and the second in command normally had gone to bed for the evening, they got a call around midnight, please fly out here at night, even though you've never flown out here at night, please pick up some patients who are being taken back to the hospital. Although the pilots were qualified to do this sort of operation, they did not do a lot of the basic things that should have been done. And I'll leave it to uh, John to take over from here to talk about the things that really uh, uh, irked you the most about this. 
Well, as I always say at the end of the show, free planning, right? The weather here and there, weather was not an issue in this case, but planning was, right? You're at night, you've never flown this this road at night. You've never, there's no indication they ever flown this helicopter at night. So you're right off the bat, you're stepping off in, into some pretty unstable territory. There doesn't appear to be any mechanical issues with the helicopter. It was perfectly uh, capable of flying this route. There, there was no reason for this airplane to, to experience a crash, except for poor planning, poor decision-making, and poor execution on the part of the flight crew. Well, that was a good wrap-up, John. <laughs> what are we going to talk about now, now that you wrapped it all up? Well... No. I'd like to talk about what they didn't talk about. That is the quality of the party that was happening here. According to the witness statements, uh, this had been a party for the uh, owner of the uh, helicopter company, who apparently was a very successful person in the coal business. And uh, there had been 20 or 30 or so family and friends arriving by, what was it, speedboat, uh, airplane and whatnot. They had been playing chess and doing other This was actually in the report. They were playing chess and doing other things. Yeah. What were those other things? He had a daughter well, recently yeah, graduated I mean, from college with a friend who also recently graduated with her from the same college. They became ill. Didn't say why, but they were so ill they had to be helped onto the helicopter to be flown back to Florida to get medical treatment. So I'll just let the audience put one and one together as to how can they get sick at a huge party in the Bahamas? Yeah, and there was, I mean, this has made uh, you know a lot of headlines because of who was involved this billionaire and his daughter and her friend and a bunch of other people. Um, but, you know, the question really um, starts with uh, fatigue. You brought it up, Todd, in the intro, and that was you got two pilots. I don't care how long a friend they were, but they are supposed to be professional pilots flying, um, you know, very expensive helicopter for the owner. Now, the owner makes a phone call and says, hey, we need you out here. Now, again, like any other pilot, you have to make that am I fit to fly decision. You know, what had they done all day? What was their, you know, day like? Did they get up at five in the morning, go out, play golf, screw around, have dinner? Did they have cocktails? Did they do a lot of stuff? The board never looked at all of that, or at least if they did, they didn't talk about it in this report. So now they go to bed like you were talking about. Let's say they go to bed at midnight. That's been a long day already. Now they get a phone call from the boss that says, hey, we need you to get out here. We need you to transport some folks back to Lauderdale uh, to a hospital. You know that that's going to be a four hour, you know, get out to the airport, get the helicopter prepped, fly out to the Bahamas. They got out there, what, two o'clock in the morning. Good morning. So now it's going to be another hour back in route. So now it's three o'clock. You know, if they had gotten up early, you're pushing almost a 24 hour day. And we all have investigated accidents where fatigue has been cited as a prominent issue in bad decision making, bad flying, um, you know, and, and the board never talked about that. Um, I think that that in and of itself, that's the start of this whole sequence of events. Yes. And when it comes to that uh, helipad that they were using uh, near this person's uh, compound, it wasn't authorized by the Bahamian government. In fact, uh, not only that, when they landed at night, they had, a, I guess, a couple of golf carts shining their lights on it so they can even see. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't think the FAA has a golf cart lights as an alternate way of lighting a helipad. Just speculating. Well, but I've done an accident like that um, years ago in Montana, where there was a guy out on a ranch who was having a heart attack and it was, you know, 30 miles from, you know, the closest big town. They launched a med flight out there and they parked a bunch of pickup trucks in a circle with the with the headlights on. That was the landing zone for the helicopter. The pilot was able to get into the landing zone. The problem was, is that after they loaded this victim onto the helicopter and everybody has their light shining, you know what that does, that, that kills your night vision. So now these guys take off and they turn towards the big city and they fly into a black hole and that helicopter pilot flew the airplane right back into the ground, you know, 300 yards from where he just picked up that patient and killed everybody on board. So, you know, it it's, wasn't spatial disorientation. It's situational disorientation. You know, it is those visual illusions we all talk about as we're learning how to fly, especially when you're learning how to fly at night. And in this case, they called it spatial disorientation. I'm not sure that's the appropriate term. What do you guys think? No, I would agree that it's more than than spatial disorientation because it, you know, a couple of degrees are not there. But in any event, he was uh, disorientated and led to a negative outcome. Well, part of that disorientation might have been their lack of, of prepping for this because there was a cockpit horse recorder tape and the report of the transcript said that, excuse me, there was no indication they were verbally doing the kinds of checks you would do before an IFR flight at night. I'll be charitable and say, maybe they weren't using words. Maybe they were passing documents back and forth, but there's no evidence of that either. And when you look at the transcript of the CVR, these guys are, I mean, aren't really focused on the operation itself. And then after they got airborne, I mean, cause it was, you know, this is one of those kick the tires, light the fire kind of, you know, flights, except this helicopter, well, it does have tires. <laughs> so, so we can get away with saying that. But when you look at the fact that they didn't have really, they were planning on the fly, pardon the pun, um, you know, they were making it up as they went along. And then once they got in the air, looking at the, the cockpit voice recorder transcript, I mean, they have an EGPWS warning going off and they're talking over the top of it, ignoring it basically. And they aren't doing those things that you'd expect two professional pilots to be doing in response to an alert, okay? And all of a sudden they got into a bit of a debate as to how high they were. One, one pilot said 150, the other one said 300. What was all of that about? Yeah, and the report doesn't talk about anything like that, you know. I mean, were they actually, were they looking at GPS altitude? Were they looking at um, at the barometric or, you know, the um, altimeter itself? Did they have a proper barrow setting in, you know, because you don't set that altimeter correctly, you know, you're going to be reading higher or lower than you, you know, you actually are. I mean, are those issues that cause these guys to fly this aircraft into the water at night because it's obvious they didn't get very high and they sure didn't get very far. Um, so whatever was happening was happening relatively quickly. Todd, when you were reading the CVR, did you notice any anything else? I mean, was there an air of complacency or distraction or could you tell from the CVR? 
Well, I could tell one thing from the CDR that the second in command, who was not uh, flying, but obviously was uh, assisting the pilot who was, 15 seconds before the end of the recording, this is what was listed in the transcript. There was a fatal accident in the UK, and this is exactly what happened there. So this person might not have done a lot of preparation. This person might not have been doing the procedures as they should have done in a typical situation like this. But obviously, this person was aware of the kind of risk they were in and recognized that in his professional reading that one does when you're a professional pilot, that, hey, this is like what happened to these people over here. Unfortunately, he didn't have the luxury of time, altitude, or airspeed to implement any ideas. You know, we've and we've talked about this in past accidents, whether it's single pilot operation in a general aviation aircraft or a professional environment, especially with two pilots. Where was the operational discipline? Where was that systematic professional structure and environment, especially in a challenging environment that they were flying in? I mean, you're going to be flying into a black hole that is over the ocean at night um, after leaving, you know, a bright, uh, highly lit area. I mean, where is the, you know, erring on the safe side or the conservative side and really understanding what it is that you're about to get into? I mean, yeah, okay, I don't care if they're flying VFR or IFR. The fact is, is that they got to get to appropriate altitude. And it's obvious they didn't make it very far and they sure didn't make it beyond 300 feet above the ground. Let's, let's paint a picture of the kind of visual challenges they had. This is again from the report. In fact, on page one of the report, according to the flight data recorder, the helicopter departed at 0152 hours. The helipad from which they departed was, a bright, was brightly lit with floodlights, but then the helicopter proceeded over water in dark night conditions with no visible moon, likely zero ambient illumination and no visible horizon, which would necessitate the pilot's reliance on the instruments in order to fly because of the very limited outside cues. Now that seems to be a sensible statement, begs the question. Do you think they were actually looking at the instruments the way they should have in a situation like this? Yeah. Well, actually, if you go further down in the report, they actually indicate that they weren't even looking at the instruments because they, they he, he called out the altitude which they believed was the rate of climb. So he was doing a quick scan of the instruments and looked down and saw a rate of climb of 300 feet a minute and thought that was his altitude. So they actually called that out in the report. And I believe and the, the question, actual altitude was at what, 116 feet, not 300 feet? Yes. And so you know, how does that happen with two professional pilots? Is it fatigue? Is it distraction? Is it complacency? Is it careless, reckless? I mean, you know, what was going on? Were the people in the back? And see, the other thing that is, isn't too clear, and that's why CVRs are always very difficult when you read a transcript, because one, you don't have any emotion in it. And two, the board um, doesn't put in all of the background sounds that are taking place that have been recorded as an artifact on the tape. I mean, are the passengers in the back talking to these uh, to the pilots? And it may not show up on the transcript as cockpit area microphone picks up a voice or something like that. But you don't know if 
one guy is looking back behind to see if everybody's still okay because you got a bunch of quote sick people back there that you're transporting hey is everybody okay back there while he's trying to talk or do things i mean all of these things are human factors elements that require a lot of attention especially like you said todd in that challenging environment you're now going into a black hole so somebody's got to fly the aircraft and you have to fly it as if you're in hard IFR. You got to be glued to those instruments. You got to be doing your scan. You got to be interpreting the information and, and then reacting appropriately to whatever is taking place. Now let's think for a second of a different situation. There's a party just like this party. There are two people very sick, just like these two people, people are very sick and you need to evacuate them. Um, you know, the average person might call 911. An above average person with a huge uh, wallet would call a private helicopter, medical helicopter service to deal with a medical emergency. But when you do that, A, the medical helicopter would have to follow whatever rules are in place at that point. And in this case, the Bahamian authorities would have required an IFR landing at an IFR approved airport, which is about five miles, nautical miles from where this happened, which would probably necess necessitate telling authorities, hey, we have these two sick people, and this flight is for these people. This kind of thing would get out because it's part of the public record now. But this was a case where, although, according to the report, there were ambulances waiting in Florida for the two sick passengers, uh, there was no medical personnel on board, just the two pilots coming out. So there was no one to looking at the report who is medically qualified to deal with someone who might be seriously ill in flight. And of course, if you're ill on the ground, there are other stresses that happen to you in flight that might make you even more sick. One of which being you might not be able to lay down. And when you, when you think about the sense of urgency, that's a lot of self-induced pressure now for this flight crew to complete the mission and do it in a timely manner. I mean, you know, they get called in the middle of the night. It's like, Hey, you need to hustle out here, pick us up and, and take our sick kids back to, uh, to a hospital. So now this crew you know, is trying to, you know, Captain Courageous, you know, hold my beer, watch this kind of thing. And that is not the type of attitude that you want at any time, let alone in a situation like this. Yes, there is a sense of urgency. Yes, there, you know, time may be critical, but you still, as a pilot, 91.3 says, you know, you have this responsibility for the safe operation of the aircraft. And, and it's obvious that that just disappeared. I mean, they were doing what they thought was appropriate and necessary. Unfortunately, they failed to maintain a high level of operational discipline in that challenging environment. You know, Greg, one thing that as we were going through this that struck me as you and I have been involved with some medical helicopters and airplane issues. And when you have the flying nurses on board, Oftentimes, they put an awful lot of pressure on the flight crew to do things yeah. that they shouldn't do. In this case, we have a parent who's got his kid that is sick, probably a lot of give and take between the two. He is the boss of the pilot, right? owner of the airplane. So he's got total control of a lot of things. And he may very well be the, the, the source of the distraction for the pilot. Yeah trying to accomplish this. And in this in this stock and uh, no horizon type of 
vent, all you have to do is turn your head one time away from the front of the airplane, and now you're, you're in trouble because you're not going to find it again very quickly. And the interesting thing about this is that you got two pilots on the aircraft and they fly the aircraft into the water. You know, you can start looking at other accidents. Look at Kobe Bryant. Look at the self-induced pressure that pilot was under to accomplish the mission. He's flying single pilot, basically in hard IFR in mountainous terrain. So, I mean, there are a number of accidents that we could actually pull and find the common denominators. And those common denominators are pilots trying to accomplish the mission for the boss or for the paying passenger or whatever, because we, you know, we've talked about it with EMS helicopters, and that is pilots, you know, have this hero syndrome and got to accomplish the mission. I got to get into the LZ. I got to pick these people up. I got to get them to the hospital in a timely manner. Even when the conditions, whether it's VFR or IFR, whether the conditions are suitable to conduct that type of operation, or they try to go into or come out of an LZ that, you know, a lot of obstructions a lot of hidden obstructions, wire environment, things like that. All of that then is compounded by that need to accomplish the mission. And you tend to lose sight of the big picture. Why? Because you're focused. Okay, I got to get out of here. Well, you're looking that way. You're not looking in the big picture, if you will. And, and it's all of those things. And it happened. We see that with general aviation pilots. We see it with professional pilots. And it really comes down to maintaining that high level of operational discipline that has to escalate into these more challenging environments, such as, you know, coming out of a brightly lit area, going into a black hole. You know, the, this event, because of the people involved and the prominence of the people involved, got quite a bit of attention outside of the NTSB and the aviation press. But what strikes me is that there's nothing really extraordinary about the circumstances, like you said. We see this again and again and again. And the same kind of social pressures exist, whether or not you're working with billionaires or working with folks who have no money at all or in the military or medevac or what have you. Uh, these things are common throughout the world and throughout various uh, phases of aviation. You know, the other thing is, and I don't know if the board really got into it, you know, you have a professional uh, helicopter organization, technically, who's operating this helicopter. I mean, did they have any kind of formal flight ops structure? Did they have a flight operations manual? Did they have a safety management system in place? Did they have the structure that, you know, required pilots to do a, a FRAP, a flight risk assessment, um, before they, uh, they departed? It's obvious, you know, from what we know out of the NTSB report, they didn't do any of that. And whether or not they would have done that if it did exist, who knows? I mean, I know a lot of flight departments that have a lot of things, but they don't follow it. They just use it for, you know, checking off the insurance block or whatever. But again, where is the, the structure? Where is that discipline? And where's the oversight? Who's responsible for that oversight? Is Page it, 17 you know? of the accident report does answer your question partially. It reads, the company did not have a safety management system nor were they required to have one. Okay. I don't care if they're not required to have one, but they should. I mean, that's, and that, that begs a whole different discussion. And that is, 
you know, the regulations say, well, you need to do it to this level. Well, yeah, but you probably should exceed that level. But I'm going to do it to the, quote, minimum standard. Why? Why? Because you don't feel like it. Why? Because it's too much trouble. Why? Because it's too much money. Why not err on the highest end of safety versus the marginal or minimum end of safety? Well, another passage here might address in part what you just said. Uh, speaking to the manager of the company, of the flight company, he added that at the time of the accident, the company did have a verbal general operating manual, but he had also had a paper copy from a different company. You got to set a standard, you train your people to that standard, and then you operate, you know, in an environment so that you can maintain that operational discipline to your, your specific standard. You can't use someone else's stuff. It may, there may be stuff there's that's not applicable, you know, and cherry picking it, you know, on the fly, if you will, doesn't work. Well, there no, could be something more problematic than using somebody else's stuff. Later on that paragraph, the chief pilot reported that the company did not provide its pilots training on spatial disorientation, crew resource management, distractions, or workload management. Wow. I mean, this was this an accident. This was right. just filling the date. You're going to have an accident. Just fill in the date. Yeah, so it's only a matter of time. Exactly. You know, have just having a simple frat would have forced these guys to stop and take a look at what they were doing, because it would have tripped immediately. You know, the numbering system that MBAA uses, for example, they have a generic flat, uh, frat. If yeah. you just use that one, it would have tripped very quickly forcing these these guys that say oh wait a minute we got to take a look at this and this to mitigate the the risks so you know and and we've all seen and the other problem is <laughs> these guys aren't trained to say no they're being paid a heck of a lot of money to fly this very expensive helicopter the last thing the boss wants to hear is i can't do it boss no um and now all of a sudden, uh, you put yourself in a position of jeopardy. And I've always maintained, you know, I ask an audience when I'm given a presentation, how much life insurance do you have? Because that's the price you just put on your head for making bad decisions. So, um, you know, in this case, they should have said, boss, can't do it. Here's, you know, and they should have had supplemental or backup lift that, the pilots could have called saying, hey, we need you to run out to, you know, Grand K and go pick up the boss because we're timed out, we're fatigued, we're whatever. We can't do the flight. And, you know, okay, you're going to pay 135 charter prices. So what? At least you're going to have a professional flight crew who probably had the overnight duty. So they're rested, they're ready to go. And, you know, with their higher levels of operational discipline, could have conducted that flight along that route, you know, safely. You know, a lot of people, wealthy people in particular, that can afford either an airplane or a helicopter, right? And they have, they, they hire a captain, you typically. So the captain is in their employee. And then they, if they're going to need two pilots, they'll get a contract pilot to, to occupy the other seat. Uh, that Those people, end up 
becoming very complacent. See it over and over and over. And that the Bedford Mass Gulfstream yeah. accident is a perfect example. Exactly. That particular pilot, pilot worked for this wealthy individual for a number of years, but yet the NTSB was able to go back with the reporters and say that for 170 something flights, he did not do a pre-flight. And many, many of the contract pilots that, that uh, are at Hanscom in Boston at the field where the airplane crashed, refused to be contract pilot with him because he never did the checklist and they just wouldn't fly with him. So when they, when they come looking for a second officer, they would say, no, not me, because of, of his uh, routine not to do the checklist. And in that case, it caught him. And I've seen that in other in instances with corporate pilots that end up being so attached to the airplane and to the operation that they just start to ignore all the, all the warning signs. Yeah, well, and, and you bring up a good point, John, about about contract pilots, and that's always been my concern, especially right now in this environment where we have a pilot shortage, not only in the airlines, but now um, you know we've got corporate pilot shortages and and that kind of thing, and you got pilots moving, you know, every which way but straight. The big thing is with a contract pilot, you may have a pilot that is type rated in a G four fifty five fifty whatever. But it's a generic type rating. And when you go fly for company A and you go fly a three-day trip, you come back from that, company B calls you. Yeah, they have a G450. But the way they operate their aircraft is totally different than the way company A operates their airplane. And oh, by the way, you're going to be a morph. You're going to be generic because you have to <laughs> meld into the way they want that airplane flown. There is no standardization. So company A has, you know, a, a prescribed procedure. You eventually pick it up maybe the third day and then you brain dump it because now you're flying for company B who does things totally different. And, you know, I mean, that in and of itself could present a problem flying with a contract pilot. Yes, they're typed on the airplane. Yes, they're proficient or current or whatever, but they don't operate the airplane the way the company expects the airplane to be operated. And, and don't forget the switch positioning. You know, people think a cockpit's a cockpit, but every airplane, when it's manufactured, the first owner will sometimes move switches around and, and change locations and, of instruments. And now you come into a cold, you get into a, an emergency, and you're looking for a switch. You know, the most glaring example that I can think of with that is that 767 coming out of uh, Los Angeles with a, a professional flight crew for a major airline, and they reached up and they shut off both engines because this particular airplane had the switches for the engines up on the overhead, and I forget what they were reaching up to turn off. It might have actually been the seatbelt sign, but anyway, they do that by memory. They didn't look up, they hit the switch, and they shut the engines off. Fortunately, they got them restarted. But, I mean, those kinds of things happen. Yeah. Sometimes the FAA will force the airlines to change the cockpits to make them uh, the same. I remember uh, uh, Air Midwest, oh no, it was Midway, excuse me, it was Midway, when they bought a, an additional bunch of uh, DC-9s used, and they were different than the ones that they were operating at the time, and the FAA insisted that they 
rearrange the cockpit so that they were both the same. Yeah. No, I mean, these are the kinds of issues that should be explored, you know, when, when the board's doing these accidents. It's one thing to be linear with the facts, condition, and circumstance to get to a probable cause, but there are all these peripheral issues. And if the three of us can sit here and talk about those issues that are relevant to aviation safety, why, aren't, why isn't the board doing that? I mean, and it's not a time issue other than the fact that they are, I mean, long in the tooth when it comes to getting reports out and that kind of stuff. But if they were going to put quality information in a report, I could accept the delay. But they don't put quality information in a lot of these reports. And we talk about it on this show all the time, what, what the reports are missing. But there's a lot of valuable safety information that goes off into the black abyss that would really benefit the aviation community. Yeah, we, you, you know, if you go turn the clock back 20 years, uh, we used to have all that in the report, all that, that side stuff, you know, not directly related to the accident, but it, it's material that was gathered during the fact-finding portion, usually the on-scene portion, where they find these problems, and industry will use them to go back and correct uh, deficiencies they see. I remember one of my very early accidents back in the, in the early 70s, we found a problem with the lanyard for the forward door escape chute. And that lanyard, when you open the door, it pulls the chute out so it inflates. So it's very important in an emergency. And we found a problem with it and it was systemic and had nothing to do with the accident, nothing whatsoever, but yet we ended up with a, 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 such a fleet campaign. Every single airplane of that model type had to have an inspection done on that lanyard and many, many of them were replaced because of the problem we found. And, uh, and nothing to do with the accident. There's, there's those nuggets in the past were in every single accident report that was done. Yep. Today, today, they're missing. So people like us and all the schools, University of North Dakota, Emory Riddle, all the schools that, that train their students to mine that information to look for safety uh, issues, it's not there. They're missing yeah. it. You know, and you know, we would we recently, you and I, Greg, were looking at some uh, accident statistics uh, that were put together by another former NTSB person about uh, uh, flight instructor accidents. Yep. And they had to use older data because the the, the current accidents involving certified flight instructors are lacking in detail in order to draw conclusions on what happened early on, what mitigated, yeah. what could be mitigating to make those accidents go away. And that just the information is not there because they're not doing that detailed look and recording of all, everything that's involved in the accident. Yeah, no, it's, it, and, and again, it is a, a concern because in this day and age, especially when it comes to more information that you have, that's more power for you. The problem is it's safety information that we're lacking. And that's really where the power is understanding, you know, these peripheral issues and how they integrate into the primary issue, because a lot of those, they, they do have an interconnection 
um, the board just draws a linear line and says, here's the most obvious cause, the big red easy button, just like this. Let, we'll just blame it on spatial disorientation. We'll write a litany of things. But, you know, in the end, it's a very simplistic probable cause. Spatial disorientation. Really? That's the best you could do? I mean, we just talked about that. Maybe it isn't spatial disorientation. It's situational disorientation and a visual illusion that caused them to fly that aircraft into the water with a bunch of other peripheral issues that, oh, by the way, they mistakenly looked at the wrong instrument. They misinterpreted the instrumentation. They misinterpreted their altitude. Where's all of that? I mean, it's buried in a discussion somewhere, but why doesn't it filter out as a cause or a contributing factor? Yeah. Well, I, I blame some of that. When I look at the NTSB today, some of it is they since since you and I left, it's been a double, at least two turnovers of personnel. So all many of the seasoned investigators that were there when we were there have retired out or left on their own. The next bunch behind them were working towards their experience level and their, raising their qualifications. They have left, mostly I'm hearing, mostly over frustration because of the budget problems and the management problems at the NTSB in the teams, you know, 2013, 14, 15. Yeah. Uh, they were frustrated. They bailed out. And the current crop that's in there has not had the benefit of all that knowledge that came before them because those individuals are gone. And now they're trying to gather it on the fly as they go forward and in today's high high pitched and, and uh, fast paced environment in aviation, it's it's awful hard to be trying to catch up. You you know you you're behind the curve and you're not you're never going to get in front of the curve until you get the right people with the right experience in there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, gentlemen, I think uh, we dissected another good accident, brought up a lot of issues that uh, hopefully the uh, listeners and viewers will uh, will appreciate. Um, again, we don't do this to be critical of the board, but we are critical of the board for not doing what we think should be done to give more information and, and at least give some safety value back to the aviation community. So with that being said, my friend, Todd, you have the second to the last word. Well, in this particular event, there was a lot to choose from, which makes it easy for those out there who are watching this to take their own action. You listen to us, you read the reports, you read the CVR, you say to yourself, man, you know, this, this, and this, I don't want this happening to me. Pick one. Don't care which one it is. Pick one and take an action. Is that action hmm. suggesting, hey, we should have some written documentation for this? Is that action... I should learn how to say no. If I have to go take a class in saying no to someone in a higher power level than me, then I got to do that because I felt bad in the past and I didn't say no. I don't want to feel bad or feel dead in the future. So take action. Great message. You know, you know, and also, even in a single pilot GA operation, having a frat, MBAA simple frat that they have, having a frat and using it has a lot of benefit to every single flight that's ever taken off, right? Because it makes you stop and look at what am I doing? Right? Can I answer honestly all these questions? And then and, and an expanded flight might have flighty questions and they take all of two or three minutes to do. 
What can I do that? Can I answer all those questions? And, you know, with the yes, and I've, I've done that, I've done this, I understand that, and keep on going. It, just a simple flat frat can help the GA community immensely, immensely. But yeah. we just don't do it. They're not taught. The CFIs don't even do it. Todd, 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 you're going through, you've been a perpetual student since the 1980s. <laughs> uh, that was a compliment, Todd. Not a... <laughs> well, hey, I felt way more competent as a student when I was uh, doing non-aviation things. And again, as you know, I'm working on my instrument rating and it's a constant learning process. And yeah. today I was uh, lucky enough to uh, fly alone and not be yelled at. But I still heard voices in my head. Todd, you missed this. Todd, you busted this altitude. So, <laughs> you know, even in this sort of situation, here's a small step I take. I love coffee. I love, I drink cups of it. The day that I fly, I limit my coffee drinking because you don't want to be distracted by pressure when you're up in the airplane trying to fly. Wow, that's, that. that's really good, Todd. <laughs> so. so you're caffeine deprived. Oh, I'm going to make a new pot as soon as the show is over. <laughs> so, John, well, we, we yeah. will leave you with the last message. Okay, then the last message is listen to this, what we've said. Please do a thorough job of pre-planning. Pre-planning could, a, a really, just a regular pre-planning session probably would have prevented this accident. All right, so they're not, doesn't have to be a big elaborate process but just follow a process that makes you think and makes you check off the boxes for those things that, that we know are traps. Yeah. It's like flying out, of, flying out of a highly lit area into a, an area that there's no lights, right? Adjust the eyes. Maybe that's the point, there's two pilots. Maybe these guys, if one of them kept his eyes shut for, for a minute before the takeoff, and then once they get away from the lights, the other guy took over, just so that to let them both get their eyes adjusted might have saved the day. No, I don't know. We don't know. And but there are things that you can do to lower the risk that don't take a lot of money, don't take a lot of time, just take a lot of thinking. Please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that. And we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.